Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book and Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, and a special section on the best films of the year, plus reviews of the latest releases. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Film Comment. Last summer, we were proud to feature Spike Lee on the cover of our magazine for his film, Black Klansman. I interviewed him then about the movie, which is based on the true story of a black FBI agent who went undercover with the Ku Klux Klan in the 70s. He told me, we wanted to find things in this period piece that would connect stuff so it was not just a history piece, that what you see in this film is really about the world we live in today. Watching Black Klansman, it's hard to miss the resonance of its story. Recently, Film Comet presented a special screening of the film with Spike Lee in person at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The moderator for the event was television host Lawrence O'Donnell. Let's go now to their conversation. So let's start with your latest big win at the BAFTAs for... for Best Adapted Screenplay. How did that feel Sunday night? Felt good. And uh, so there was a guy there uh, who's Prince something, who's under the firm belief that at some point he's gonna become King of England. Uh, he must have been very excited to meet Spike Lee and come over and discuss with you your entire body of work. That's what I'm assuming happened. That did not happen, but okay. there was a whole, every person who won a BAFTA award was on stage, so. They're going from... So you had your moment. That was as close as God. Okay. That was good enough. You know? Okay. Um, so six Oscar nominations, film editing, music score, supporting actor, adapted screenplay, director, best picture. Um, we just, I just sort of did a rough calculation in my head that there's probably been in the 91 years about 450 director nominations. Six of them have been black directors. If you win, you would be the first black director to win an Oscar in the 91 years. What would that mean to you? Well, Jackie Robinson started in Brooklyn. <laughs> there are a lot of firsts, so... Uh, the first is never really the first, because Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson had to play in the Eagle Leagues before Jack could get the shot. So there's people who put you in a position to be the first. You just wake, you don't just don't wake up and be the first. There was somebody there before you did that uh, take the slings and the arrows. Not that Jack didn't get those, but someone has to, uh, you know, take a beating to get where you need to be, you know, if you're a person of color in this country. Let's, let's talk about <clears throat> this movie through these nominations and how you work through these nominations. So film editing. Uh, I would assume Spike Lee has uh, a very heavy involvement, uh, to put it mildly, in the editing of a Spike Lee film. That's true, but I'm not an editor. And my longtime editor, Barry Brown, who edited School days, do the right thing. 
Inside Man, Malcolm X, he got his first nomination with the... Mm-hmm. We, he edited... We were editing School Days in 1987. So that's, that's going way back. Another longtime collaborator, Terrence Blanche, the great jazz trumpeter, composer. He finally got his first nomination in Sunday Night. Even though he didn't win the BAFTA award, he won a, he wore, he won a Grammy in, in L.A. So we're happy about that, too. And Adam Driver got his first. He's going to get many more. Let's talk about casting for a second right. when we get to that nomination. At what point in the process do you start thinking about casting? The minute I, um, I decided that uh, I'm thinking about what film I'm going to do. So <laughs> casting is very early for me also what the music's going to be about and who, and like a general manager, head of a, a sports team, who are you going to get to fill the positions that you need to win? As simple as that. And as far as in front of the camera, you want to get the best people for that particular role. And many times, uh, timing doesn't work out. Like Alec Baldwin, we had talked for many, many years working together, and uh, we found the time for uh, his... I wouldn't call it a cameo because it's, it's, what he does is great. So timing has, plays a lot in everything. You know, everything has to uh, line up, and the stars did align with this film, Black Klansman. Yeah. And, uh, and the, to move to the screenplay, uh, before we start discussing how you worked on the screenplay, this whole project started as a phone call from Jordan Peele? No. Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought I heard you say in another interview, but go ahead. No, I said uh, how I got involved. Mm-hmm. There was, the book was bought, a script was written. Then that's why I came into the equation. So it had been a project already. Ron Stallworth uh, wrote uh, not about autobiography, but about his time being the first African-American detective in the Colorado Springs detective. I mean, in Colorado Springs uh, Police Department. Wrote a book. And many things happened and get out hit. Mm-hmm. And the producers approached Jordan would like to be part of this. And they made a list of people, and I was the first one was called. And Jordan's six-word pitch to me was, black man infiltrates Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and at first, I thought he was, I said, David, well, this is not original. David Chappelle did this already. <laughs> I said, no, David made that up. This is a real person. I had not heard of Ron Stallworth nor his story. And so then you started digging yeah. into the story. Um, yes, with the, the, I was sent the, the book and the script and written already. And I called up my co-writer, Kevin Wilmot, let's take a crack at this. And we knew that if we could come up with stuff 
that connect the, the present with the past, then uh, that would be a good way to tell the story. So it would not just be a period piece. Mm-hmm. And, and how did he come into it as your co-writer? I met him this weekend in London. He's a professor in the Midwest. Yes, uh, Kevin Wilmot is a Jayhawk. He's a tenured film professor at the University of Kansas. And I'm a tenured professor at NYU down the block. I mean, not down the block, but downtown. Mm-hmm. Where, when I was there, Ernest Dickerson and Ang Lee, we were all in the same class, class of 1982. And so as you approach the screenplay, I mean, one of the things that is a, is a common challenge in, in screenwriting is this, the notion of, is this believable? Will the audience buy this? But what you knew all along is, well, this did happen. So th- that doesn't a- alleviate the challenge of is it believable, necessarily. No, here's the thing I was really worried about, because when I finally met Ron, I said, let me ask you a question. We talked on the phone first before we met. I said, how come they cannot tell a difference between your voice, who's the black Ron Stallworth, on the phone and your white partner in person. And he said, there's only one time where, we put in a script where, uh, <coughs> I have a, you know, something yeah, in my yeah, throat, but yeah. I still found that unbelievable. And it's true. David Duke swore he was speaking to another white Aryan fascist, racist, what other words can I use? On the phone. Mm-hmm. And it was a black man. Mm-hmm. The Grand Wizard. David Duke. So, I was, you know, you, you could say that in person, but I didn't know if the audience would believe that, that these guys are so stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But the audience believed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like on the David Duke side of the phone call that there is a couple of things going on. There's, there's possibly wishful thinking. And then there's just an assumption that this is the way we think. This is the way that th- this is normal thinking that he's hearing from this guy on the other end of the phone. Well, David Duke didn't invent this stuff. This stuff is passed down. Blackface is passed out. Mm-hmm. It's part of American history, you know. Now all this stuff is. I just, I just find it curious that all this stuff is happening under the non-leadership of the President of the United States of America. So uh, I call him. I don't call him by his name. I call him Agent Orange. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shout out to Buster Rhymes. He came up with that. You trying to rewrite Spike Lee right here? I like Agent Orange. <laughs> because uh, I mean, I was a kid in the 70s and Vietnam, Agent Orange, that's some deadly shit. I remember that picture that the young Vietnamese girl running down the road in her, her, her 
skin on fire. So that's my, that's why I can make the connection between uh, that guy and who was that, Dow Chemicals? Dow, yes. Yeah, yeah Dow, Dow Chemical Men. Dow Chemicals. Napalm, they were Napalm. using. So who did Agent Orange? Yeah. They did both of them? That, that's, that's another component of it all, yeah. So, you know, we live in a very, very dangerous time. And uh, I think that's one of the film. that's one of the reasons why this film, you know, hit. You know, we, uh, this film made as, as much money in, in international as it did really split down the middle as it did uh, domestic. And it started in Cannes at the film festival. And people are smart to understand that this is not just the United States we're talking about. If you look at what's happening in uh, this new guy they got in, in uh, Brazil, got the guy's name in Italy, Savini, Salvini. And just this is a rise of this this right. It's become a phenomenon, and and you see that it's the same from written from the same playbook where you target somebody, and they're the they're the reason for all the things that are wrong in our country. You got to keep them out and preserve our heritage, our culture, and it is begun is is happening again and again and again and many times within in the film you uh hear the phrase america first but that's not new the clan came with that in the 20s and now was used against immigrants so all this stuff is just recycled there are we hear from filmmakers that there are films that they make uh because of the times they're living in uh, and others that are just great stories that they, they would have made this film no matter when they discovered this story. Uh, which one of, of those is, is this film? It's a great story. So, uh, but again, I would have made it, mm-hmm. but everything is timing. So this becomes more heightened because of, of the world we live in. And uh, Charlottesville happened like three or four weeks right before we began the principal photography. And once I saw that, I knew I wanted that to be Dakota. But first I had to ask Susan Bro, the mother had the hair, her daughter was murdered. That was an act of American terrorism, homegrown. I mean, so often we're conditioned to think that terrorists automatically are some Middle Eastern people or folks or ISIS, whatever you want to call them. But we terrorized ourselves more than anybody. After Charlottesville, we had uh, the synagogue in Pittsburgh and the letter bombs and all, you know, Oklahoma City. That was a terrorist act. So there's, I mean, we go, and school shootings, I think, are terrorist attacks. So, we, you know, we're the most violent country, I think, on this earth. And the NRA is not helping. And the politicians are afraid to... Uh, confront these guys, they're getting too much money. But uh, to go in the store and buy an automatic weapon, I mean, you're not, you're not, you're not hunting for an animal, you're, you're going for human beings. So all this stuff is tied together, I feel. So you were in, certainly in script development and pre-production when um, he who shall not be named said that 
both sides were good people. Uh, working on this material on that day when you heard that, how did that affect you? Well, those words can go down to infinity, infinity for him. Because uh, historically, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but historically, the President of the United States is thought to be the most powerful person on the earth, the leader of uh, the cradle of democracy, and the one to lead us, give us guidance, whatever you want to call it, in, in tough times. He did not fulfill that duty as a president of the United States as, as I see. I find it very ironic at his State of the Union where several times you have people stand up and I didn't notice that one was a survivor of a concentration camp and another, I think, if I remember correctly, uh, landed in, in Norm Normandy Beach with the Allies. Again, both directly in opposition to the Nazis. When I see the Nazi flag, oh, excuse me, when I see the, the, the stars and bars, for me, I see the, the, the swastika. And for him to make that statement, and I know he saw the footage in Charlottesville where he saw nothing but swastika is in a Zig Heil salutes. How could he not make a, 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 a response that is morally correct? He was on. The, he's going to be on the wrong side of history for that. When historians go back and look at this turbulent times, of all the fucked up shit he's done, and that's a lot, Charlottesville is going to be up there where he doesn't have the courage to denounce fascism, to have the courage to denounce the KKK, the courage to denounce the alt-right, and the courage to denounce neo-Nazis. He didn't do it. He's on the wrong side of history. I mean, that, that, that statement is gonna haunt him. It's gonna haunt him. And I know what being haunted, I've seen being haunted means. I did a documentary called Four Little Girls, which was nominated for an Oscar. We didn't win. <laughs> but it's about the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that took place September 1963. And what I want to do with this documentary to interview the friends, teachers, parents, relatives of these four girls, and let us, I don't use narrators in my documentary, let, and let them tell us, let them tell the story of who these four little beautiful black girls, who were they not, their, their body had not been torn apart by dynamite, who they might have been, they allowed to live. And on a whim, I put out a call to interview George Wallace. And he agreed to an interview. I never thought that would happen. And he knew, you could tell that 
he'd have long to live. And that I saw someone who is seen as maker, who knew that he's going to answer for that shit he did. And all throughout the interview, he was spinning alternative version of history, like he had not stand in the, in the hallway, stand in the front door, University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa, and, and stop Vivian Malone from attending that school. And it was sad, because he knew he was going to die, and he was thinking about whether he's going to go to heaven or hell, and he was sweating. And I think that same thing might happen to this guy. Because there comes a time when you, I think, I'm not there yet, I'm 61, <laughs> don't rush me. But there's come a time we're all gonna come to meet the, your maker. We're gonna have to atone for your sins. And that's the day of reckoning. And, and what we filmed in that interview is his recognizing like, I'm gonna have to pay because of all he was responsible for people being killed. He's the one that gave the green light to Sheriff Bull Connor to turn German shepherds. War had just let the Klan run free. Half the police department was Klan. And another thing I'd like to say is that about this film, this, not, not many people know this, but Four Little Girls is probably the most supportive film I made that convinced me that film could change the world. One of the guys, one of the uh, terrorists, the Klan's a terrorist group, homegrown American. One of the terrorists in the Klan who was one of the bombers, his name was Dynamite Bob Shan. His nickname was Dynamite Bob. Dynamite Bob Shambliss. J. Edgar Hoover and the Klan knew a week after who did it. A week after. There was a trial, but those guys went to jail. It was dropped. Four little girls opened at the film forum. And the day, I can't remember exactly, but soon before the film opened, I got a call from the FBI. And they said they wanted to see this film. The day the film opened, the FBI opened that motherfucking case again and sent those motherfuckers to prison. <laughs> but Jagger Hoover knew, the FBI knew a week after. I think uh, Fall of Girls came out in 91. You can Google 91, 92. The bombing was September 1963. J. Edgar Hoover knew. They all knew. The guy's motherfucker's name was Dynamite Bob Shambliss. <laughs> Birmingham was called Bombingham. The middle class area of Birmingham, I mean, I forgot that, I mean, it was like they used to bomb these houses left and right. So film can, you know, have a 
can do stuff. And, and that, that, that's my example, personally, of a film, you know, have an impact. What is the- Excuse me for my profanity, but when I think about the motherfuckers, <laughs> gets me motherfucking mad. <laughs> we have a pro-profanity audience. Pick up your copy of the new issue of Film Comment, with features on Jean-Luc Godard's The Image Book and Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace, and a special section on the best films of the year, plus reviews of the latest releases. Subscribe today at filmcomment.com. Spike, what is it like for you personally when you're working with material that has so much emotional weight? I mean, I, I've been to Birmingham. I spent a weekend there. I, I went to... A Sunday morning church where Martin Luther King had preached. I was in the memorial for the little girls, the museum, for a couple of hours. And then Monday morning, I flew out of Birmingham. I, was, I, wasn't, I didn't have to carry that emotional weight for the weeks and months uh, that you do while you're working on projects like this. What, what is that weight like? Thank you for that question. It's a good question. Which it all be tonight? This is my man right here. We were we were we were drinking champagne the Sunday night in London <laughs> with the the prince and the princess, Her Majesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a it's a responsibility. Mm-hmm. It's not a burden. I wanted to tell these stories for little girls. It's, it's, uh, I wanted to tell Malcolm X. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X was told to Alex Haley in junior high school. That's, that book had, has had the most impact on me of any book, any book I've ever read. Now when I read the book, I know I was gonna do the movie, because I, I don't even know what I want to do. I want to be a filmmaker back then, but there are just some things that, I'm a storyteller. So it's not, it's not a burden, you know, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but the stories I got to tell, you know, I've been doing it, I'm in my, getting going in my fourth decade, and I hope I have another 20 years, I do a Kurosawa, <laughs> one of my heroes, because these stories have to be told. What's great now is that early on, I was going out there along with uh, Robert Townsend, but it is so... Great, I'm so grateful to see many other people telling, and not just African Americans, but women too, people of color telling their story because we all have a need to tell our story from our own particular perspective. That's just a part of being a human being, to tell the world, tell the universe, this is who I am, this is who we are, this is our story and try to sometimes negate the false stories that are out there. There's a scene in Black Klansman where we have a very talented Corey Hawkins who went to Juilliard playing Kwame Ture and not Stokely Carmichael. He's playing Kwame Ture. And he talks about how growing up I mean, this scene, that scene really talks about the power of media. That scene talks about how black people were 
led to think that they were inferior. Inferior. He talks about how growing up watching, going to Saturday night, Saturday, Saturday afternoon matinees, he would cheer for Tarzan. Would actually cheer for Tarzan versus the savages, the natives. And he made a great, great analogy. He said, me doing that would be the same thing as a young kid was cheering Jewish people being marched to a concentration camp. That shows you how powerful the medium is and why, why people have to tell their story. One of my favorite photographic things we did in that scene is with the montages of the, the portraits because it just makes sense. He's talking about, he says, again, this is a true story. Uh, uh, Kwame did speak to the black students. He did come to Colorado Springs. And, he's, and he talked about, he's teaching, he's teaching, he's talking to young college students and he's telling them, you have broad lips. You have big lips, broad nose, your hair, your hair is kinky, come from many different shades, blue, black, the high yellow, the Creole to red bone, whatever it is, you were beautiful. And so that scene, I didn't write that. Kevin and I didn't write that script. We compiled several Kwame speeches and put them together. And so to emphasize what we're saying, we would pick, while we were shooting like auditorium like this, in the side room we had another camera. So in between, in between takes, we'd, I would go through the audience and pick different black people, but everybody's different. And then I, I won, we pulled them out and shot porches of them while we're doing the main thing in here. And then we incorporated him into, into that scene so we could demonstrate, so we could visually see the many different, the beautiful versions of the people that we are. I thought that was, that was very important because, I mean, it was not a, I mean, back in the day, you call somebody black, that was a fight. You know, it's people like Kwame Ture and even James Brown with this song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. That song is in the movie, but it's, they're reciting the lyrics. So all these things are very, very powerful for people to believe themselves when they've been told from the minute they come out their womb that you're inferior, you're subhuman, and whatnot. And then the job... And then I always think about Native Americans. What, I mean, I'm not a big George, I'm not a big John Ford fan. I'm not a big John Wayne fan for those reasons. If you look at those films, those guys did, they demonize Native Americans, savages, all types of stuff, subhuman. And the truth is that this country was built upon the genocide of Native people and slavery. That's the foundation, I mean, whether you like it or not, that's the truth. That is the foundation of this country. Genocide of Native people now live in the worst conditions 
I wouldn't call them reservation camps, they're concentration camps. I mean, that's, 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 the real story has not been told, was, in my opinion, what's done, especially a movie about what has been done to Native Americans. So, again, an example how TV, the Long Ranger, sidekick Tonto, and in many, many films, cowboy films where Native Americans may not be, uh, you know, savages and subhuman. So the American TV and American film has a history of dehumanizing uh, people of color and women too, homosexuals. So there's, there's important that, that we bring more diversity so we could tell maybe not rewrite the wrongs, but tell more enlightened, more truthful versions of these stories. John David Washington uh, has an incredible challenge in that scene you were describing about that speech. Because right. he's got the job of sitting there, he has no lines. He has no lines. But you, it seems, are hoping that the audience is reading his mind or trying to read his mind. And the actor has the challenge of delivering us something to read. It's one of the most fascinating moments, I thought, just as, as an acting challenge in the middle of that movie, which, which is an acting challenge all the way through because he's the guy right. who has to pull off your magic trick of right. making it believable that a black man is on the phone with a white racist who believes he's talking to another white racist. Yes, John David Washington. The, the son of Pauletta and Denzel Washington. <laughs> Gotta give moms love. The thing is that what I, what, I, what I did was to help him is that when the camera was on John David, we still, Corey was still doing his thing. So we had cameras on John David so he could react in time to what Corey was saying as Kwame Ture. And what we tried to do is, because here's the thing, he's, he's, he's the first black detective in Colorado Springs. His first job was to go to a Kwame Ture speech and listen to it. So if you're a black cop detective, you, you know, you're feeling, you're conflicted. You've, it's complex. But what we tried to do, what we hope we convey, what we hope we convey was that the more he was hearing that truth, that knowledge and wisdom coming from Kwame, it was like, oh shit, this doesn't make sense. And then he's like, uh oh, like, <laughs> he's ready to raise his his hand all the way up. He said, oh shit, I'm under, under, I'm under cover. Let me bring it down. But he does say power to the people. So I'm glad you brought that scene up because that's, that's where we wanted to uh, convey that. He's conflicted. And there's another scene in the film where his character and Laura Harry who plays Patrice Dumas they talk about something which I feel, which I feel is within the African American community from the beginning. You know, this, this discourse, this discussion, this debate, how we're gonna advance ourselves as a people from the inside, 
from the outside. Go all the way back to W. Du Bois versus Booker T. Washington, Malcolm Martin, and Du Bois talked about really probably the best. Talking about the duality of being African American, you're African American, you're African, and you're American, and this schism, this tunis, you know, can give you a heart attack. And with the going back to Malcolm X, we at the end of Malcolm X, we had two quotes, one from Dr. Martin Luther King and one from Malcolm. And one, Malcolm's like how non-balanced all the way. I mean, Martin and Malcolm was, look, we have to defend ourselves. And my, I've come to believe that we're going to move forward. It's going to have to be a, a mesh of the two. You know, Malcolm said it best. He said, you know, I'm a, it's good that I'm good for Dr. Martin Luther King because they rather deal with him than deal with me. So people, we got to find your lane. I stay on my set all the time. Find your lane. Well, you know, you, you don't even, this is not even your, you know what you're talking about. Stay over there. Do your job. People, everybody, I've come to, I, I know I'm being repetitive, but I've come to learn this. Everybody has their own way to go. On the way, the way they see things, and it may not be the way that, that uh, I'm not talking about the President of the United States, though. I'm just talking about on a more personal level. And Malcolm, and it's, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that when Malcolm and Dr. King finally found a common ground, that's when they got assassinated. You know, and add to the fact that when Dr. King started talking about uh, economics, poor people's campaign, and especially when he started talking about Vietnam, the war is immoral. President Johnson said, like, yo, that's like, you stab me in the back. I give you all the civil rights stuff. Then you say that the war is immoral. He wasn't around after that much longer. So we have a very complicated history in this country. And uh, if we have, I think history has shown that when we get together, that's when things move forward. I tell my friends all the time, oh, President Barack Obama did not become president just by black folks voting for him. We can do it alone. So it's coalition, a coalition of people come together, you know, on the, on the path of righteousness, you know, and that's how we move the country forward. Civil rights, let me go back, civil war, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, it's been a coalition of people. And it's gonna take that coalition, coalition. I mean, it wasn't over the midterm election. I know this is your thing, politics, so I'm just trying to, <laughs> a little bit. You know, President Obama said, I read it and saw it too, that this coming, you might agree with this, this coming election might be the most important presidential election in history, United States of America. Do you believe that? The next one? Yes. Yeah. The next one. And that doesn't motivate you for all of us to come together 
and, and we got to turn this ship around because we're going Drano down the drain. And stuff that's happening, I mean, it, it's amazing. It's not amazing, but it's sad. When, how can the President of the United States put in effect a move where infants and babies are snatched from their mother arms and then have nothing in place to make sure that child infant can be reunited with their parents. Children in cages, they still don't know. I don't know the number, I'm not quoting the number. There's, they still don't know. They're still kids, they don't know who their parents are, where they are. Parents know where their children are, but they, well, the slick things say, well, we're not gonna care about them, you know why? We should not care about them because they're murderers. They're rapists. They're drug dealers. And we should build a wall to keep them out. You got a question about the movie? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I have a question about the movie. And this comes But from, this is the movie, though. This is the movie. That's the crazy thing. Uh, so this comes from me having the honor about, I don't know, what, eight years ago, Spike, nine years ago, of working with Spike Lee, uh, because uh, MSNBC decided to go all out when they were launching my show, and their first advertising campaign for my show was directed by Mr. Spike Lee, okay? So we did about, did about three spots. And so in that process, I got to be on a Spike Lee set with, with the Spike Lee crew. Now, I've been on a lot of film sets before that, working in the drama side of episodic television and in other capacities as a producer, writer, all that. I had never seen a crew like Spike Lee's crew in a couple of ways. You hear all this talk all the time now in Hollywood about let's make a giant effort to try to hire more women and let's make a giant in the crews and in the uh, directing spots and other spots, let's make a giant effort to try to bring in uh, more minority people in crews. You go to any crew, you look at any film set in Hollywood, it tends to be on the order of 90% white, somewhere around there. When you're on Spike Lee's set, you are in a different place with a completely different crew, and it is family unlike anything I've ever seen on a set. It is the best crew I have ever worked with by far. The whole team is assembled very personally and held together through the years by this guy, and I know when uh, uh, Sunday night at BAFTA and at other times when you get up there and you get to say thank you with awards, what you're never gonna get is enough time to thank all the people on that crew who are below that name, Spike Lee Director. Thank you very much. Uh, it's true. From the very beginning, when I was at NYU, I had the mindset that if, uh, if I was able to slip in the door, I was gonna try to bring as many people with me, and women, just everybody, the young, who's hungry, who's talented, wanted to work. For example, uh, one of the 
nominees of best costume designer. Her name is Ruth Carter. Her first film was School Days. She did Do the Right Thing, Mo Better, Jungle Fever, got her first nomination for Malcolm X, got a second nomination for Steven Spielberg's uh, Amistad, and now I hope she wins for Black Panther. So there are a lot of people that are, but even more so, now that I've been a teacher, I have so many students now who are working in this industry. And the industry is not really set up for uh, people of color, women too, to succeed. So I've just tried to do the, the part I can do. And I just, you know, I don't want people to stick around, you know, forever. Sometimes they gotta go. <laughs> because, you know, you know, you got the old guy on the team, he was, he was good five years ago, but he's still hanging on. It's a tough business. And you gotta let talent, you know. Again, I keep going back to sports. The best teams have always had the seasoned veterans and you know, the, the youth. You need that combination because that makes things go. If it's all, if everybody's their first job, they know the hell they're doing. Everybody's old, they're like, they're burnt out and like, they're like collecting checks. So you gotta, it's so much stuff revolves around chemistry. Chemistry is a real live thing. Vibe is a real live thing. It's energy. We all notice. How many times you got in a room and you want to turn, you want to get the fuck out of there and turn right around. <laughs> All the time, like, oh man, it's like, you could feel vibrations, you could feel energy. And people with bad energy are a cancer. They can fuck everything up. They gotta go. They gotta go, I mean, I've never been hesitant to fire somebody. And they weren't, they weren't doing their job, and they're making problems. Gotta go. It's cutthroat. But I'm not gonna let this person, you know, sabotage the movie. The movie is these, these things are my life. Nah, motherfucker, you gotta go. <laughs> I don't use that. Uh, I don't say it like that. <laughs> but that's what I'm feeling. You can't, remember that? For Motown heads, you know, back in the day, that song, One Monkey Don't Stop No Show. Gotta go. That's not the second line, but uh, it, it's, it's, you gotta be, people have to be committed. This film, Black Clans, everybody in front of and behind the camera. Extras. You know, we had a big thing in Brooklyn, we had a, a calling for uh, Afros. We had 6,000 people show up. You know, some people try to sneak in with the wig, but <laughs> I got a wig detector. <laughs> An Afro wig detector, and so uh, we just, they just got pulled out the line, like, sorry, but you're not gonna make it. Uh. <laughs> We're just freestyling up here. Come on. 
Stay with us, stay with us. The amazing thing about this crew and about Spike is that they bring that commitment and that professionalism even to a 30-second spot for an MSNBC show. I can testify to that. Spike, uh, before we go, uh, 1619, it's a 400-year anniversary right now of the... The, the, uh, of the beginning of stories that we have been telling. Uh, you've just told another story in Black Klansman that is a result of what happened in 1619. Uh, we are not close to uh, covering the 400 years in our storytelling, uh, and there's so much more to be said. Uh, what does this 400 years and this, and what does 1619 mean to you now? Good way to end this. I want to thank everybody for coming out, too. Thank you very much. Thank you. 1619 is a historical number. 40 years ago, from 1619 to 2019, 40 years, my ancestors, our ancestors have been here. Uh, the first slave stolen from Mother Africa brought to Jamestown, Virginia. And as I get older, I really made an effort, which has, been, which has become successful in trying to link my ancestors. And many times, you know, when, when shit wasn't going, when shit was going right, you know, I always found courage, understanding wisdom, my ancestors, because whatever I was going through, it was nothing compared with what our ancestors were going through. Work to work from can't see in the morning to can't see at night to have your family broken, sold apart, to be whipped, to have the, the danger of being whipped, castrated, hung, beat, whatever, on a moment's notice if Mazda gets mad at you, uh, if you're after, if you're a woman, knowing any moment, you might be raped by Mazza. And, and here we are today, you know, who would ever thought to be a black president? You know, you think about all the stuff and, and, and how much African-Americans have uh, done despite the odds but we're still not, this country is still not there. I mean, this whole blackface thing, I did a film about that in 2000. The film was called Bamboozled. And it's, it's just like, we, I'm not, I mean, one of the major criticisms of Do the Right Thing was that I not have the answer at the end of the movie. <laughs> I not get the answer to racism, prejudice. I don't, I don't know necessarily, not because people are artists. But I never thought it was my job as having the answers. I thought my job was to be a storyteller and put this shit out there and let's discuss it. One of my most gratifying moments was do the right thing was because I would go to all the theaters and, and the, movie, the movie came out, lines around the block, even though it opened up the same day as Tim Burton's Batman. And the theater owners were having a hard time because people were not just leaving the theater. 
Some of you might have been some of those people. <laughs> people got up their seats slowly and, uh, and had these deep conversations with what people don't even know. And they get out, out of the seats and then they have another conversation in the lobby. And if they're always trying to push him out because they got a line around the block and they got to get these people in. And so it, people were talking about that film. Talking about it. And, and that's, that's what's most important for me. You know, if, if you could have something that, that could provoke discussion, not to say necessarily any great discoveries can, great discoveries can, discoveries can come out of it, but just people just talking about what they just saw sitting in the dark for the last two hours. Why did Mookie throw the garbage can through the window? Who started the riot? Who was right? Sal or bugging out? Well, Sal has a point. This is America. It's his business. He can do what the fuck he wants. Bugging out has a point. Yo, my man, we're in the middle of bedside, do or die. I don't see no and I don't see any Italians around here. I see all black and Puerto Ricans. You can't give some respect and put up one African American on the wall of fame. So both Sal and Bugging Out, you know, they got an argument. A good argument. Sal, this is my business. I can do what I want. Bugging out, look, and bugging out saying, look, without us, without brown people, without brown people, you don't make any money. What are you going to do? That's good drama, but, it, but it's, it's also true. We are going to have to leave it there. I am so sorry to say, because I've got two hours to do on Do the Right Thing. But, uh, but we're going to let uh, Spike's art now speak for Spike Lee for the next couple of hours. Thank you very much, Spike Lee. Really appreciate it. Oh, I forgot. You're seeing the movie, too. Oh. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast with music by Greg Einge. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth features, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com to purchase a print or digital subscription to Film Comet. Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.